Today I wanted to ask uh, Andy Braid, who uh, just got back a couple of weeks ago from uh, El Salvador, and he, uh, he uh, was down there for two months, uh, and I'm just going to let him talk about uh, the experiences that he had there in El Salvador and uh, uh, some of the great testimonies that, uh, that took place during that time. So Andy, come on up. Let's welcome back Andy Braid. Well, good morning. It's good to be back. Um, there's nothing like uh, hearing English. It's always an awesome thing. But I just wanted to first and foremost thank you for all your prayers. Um, it's, it was a blessing to be out there and to know that my church family was a part of that ministry with me. So I just thank you guys all for that. Uh, just so everyone knows, I was in the capital city which is in El, which, of El Salvador, which is San Salvador, um, and I know people were kind of confused. It's like, is it two different countries or, you know, what's going on? But I was in the capital city, so I wasn't in a remote area with no running water or had to go kill my own food, um, you know. <laughs> but it, it was different. There was a lot of different cultural things, you know. Um, you get used to hot water here, and they don't really have hot water there at all, unless you want to electrocute yourself with this little gadget that they put on the uh, shower head. They connect live wires to the water pipe. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, but um, I was totally blessed with the time that I was out there. Um, I was out there for two months, but before that I was in Montana for six months, and I went to Pottersfield's um, Global Impact Program, which is a ministry or a missionary training school. And um, if you guys ever seen the exhibit that uh, Pottersfield comes and Pam and Mike Rozelle come and they do this big old thing showing that, that uh, God truly is the, the potter and we're just the clay. We're the vessels, so we want to be vessels of honor. And so when uh, I was over there with Pottersfield, they have an orphanage, so I got to work alongside the Calvary Chapel in, uh, they call it the Central Church in San Salvador, and I got to work with the orphanage. And uh, it, was a, it was a lot of fun um, just to give you... Uh, a little bit of taste of what I did on a weekly basis. Um, uh, two days out of the week, I worked with the local church because they had a school there. So we would, I would follow around a teacher. I followed around the Bible teacher, and I'd be basically just helping out with discipline half the day. And then the other half of the day, I'd be working, doing maintenance, um, making a birdcage, uh, you know, painting walls, any sweeping, mopping, anything that they needed. Um, a lot of painting, though. <laughs> And then um, two days out of the week, we'd be at the orphanage, and we'd be able to work with um, the CDI program, which um, basically is their after-school program with the kids. And then in the morning, we'd be able to work on the property, raking and helping out with maintenance, and it was the same. And uh, I also helped out uh, with English classes, because they're like, hey, what can three white men who don't know the language do in El Salvador? Oh, they can teach English. So um, that's, that's what we did over there. Is, uh, we had around, I think altogether, every week we would teach around maybe 80 people, um, maybe more, because on Fridays we would teach the kids, and then on, Saturday, or on Thursday nights we would teach the adults. So we had ages ranging from, I don't know, 6 to like senior citizen. Um, so it, it was just a blessing to be there and to see different ways. And I just wanted to give you the report out of... Out of looking El Salvador, I'm not sure if you guys know this, they're out of a civil war, around 10 years. 
and you can just see the impoverished, the physical impoverished state that their country's in. But I want to tell you that Jesus Christ is flourishing. I want to tell you that there's kids all over the place just proclaiming Jesus Christ and they have hope. You know, there's, there's the affiliated churches that come out of the central church. There's eight of them and Pottersfield helps with them and and uh, I got to take some um, some other missionaries down there. We did work projects and stuff like that. And you just see these kids and you're like, here, I'm supposed to minister to you. And then you're blown away because they're ministering to you. They're just ministering to my heart. And um, so I just wanted to tell you that that there's hope. In any state, we, we learn that, that God created us in His likeness and that His work is being done all around the world. So I, could, I just ask you to uh, continue to pray and I just ask you to be encouraged. Um, there's just brothers and sisters who would want me to tell you that they are so thankful for um, all your prayers and the financial support that happens over there that makes their ministry possible. Um, one of the one of my favorite ministries that I was involved with. There's a we helped out with the soccer ministry and we helped out uh, with the kids and doing different things and helping with breakfast and stuff like that. But my favorite ministry was this ministry called Campos Blancos, and you can keep that in your prayers if you guys want. I would encourage you to. It's a ministry that what they do is they kind of do a VBS. It's a children's ministry. So what they do is they they have I think ten groups of teachers. And they have like, um, each group maybe has like four or five, and they go to ten different areas of the city that's around their church because some people can't get to the church on Sundays. And so they minister to over 200 kids every week on top of what's at their own church. And so it's really, it, it, it was a blessing. Um, the group that I went to was, you know, it was an apartment complex. And, uh, you see kids, you know, coming with like torn jeans and not because they bought them that way, but because that's the state of their, of what they live in. And, uh, but I saw hope and I just wanted to, to share that hope with you. And I know Pastor Charlie, that's his life message. It's Jesus Christ. And so just know that we are complete in him. And I just want to thank you again. And uh, if you ever want to talk to me, I love telling stories. Uh, so don't be shy. Please come talk to me if you want to know anything about missions or cultural things of El Salvador or just you just want to talk about Jesus. Uh, please take the time to find me. All right, God bless you. I want to uh, continue to reinforce the things that we have been studying for the past 10 weeks in the book of Genesis, and I hope that these uh, uh, little videos that we show are, are helpful to keep those things in mind. Of course, we are going to deal with male and female soon in this next chapter, chapter 2, that we are now involved in, and or beginning to be involved in today. And so I ask that you would turn to Genesis chapter 2 if you haven't done it already. And uh, our text this morning is found in verses 1, 2, and 3. The first three verses. Thus the heavens 
and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. This morning as we come to the Lord in prayer, please remember Victoria and Sandra Arriola. We're going to pray for them here in just a moment. Shall we pray? Father, this morning we come before your throne of grace in thanksgiving and praise for the wondrous things that you have done in creation. And we pray, Father, that as we look forward to the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that all that we see in your word from Genesis to Revelation will be that which encourages our hearts to live our lives for you. To pour our hearts out, in, in not only in worship and praise, but in service and devotion. To realize that in the midst of this battle that we face, a battle for truth, that we are at the very center of it when we speak of your creation and how you created the things that we see and don't, and don't see today, the visible and the invisible. And so we're thankful, Lord God, to be recipients of your Holy Spirit. And we ask that you would pour out your Spirit upon us today so that we may come to a greater understanding, Lord, of your creation and of your purposes and plans for us. Today we also pray for Victoria and Sandra Arriola who are ill today. We would only ask that you would heal them, Lord, this very moment. For you who could place the stars in the sky, the sun and the moon and its in their courses, Lord, today we know that you are able to heal us from those things that distract us or hurt us or pain us, Lord God, and keep us from enjoying worship together with you. And so bless Victoria and Sandra today and all those in our own families who are struggling through illnesses. May you bless them with healing and strength. And Father, open our hearts, our eyes, our ears, and our minds to all of your truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. <clears throat> a doctor, an architect, and a lawyer were arguing over who had the oldest profession. The doctor said, Well, the first operation was performed on Adam, so the medical profession is the oldest. No, said the architect. Architectural planning and design was needed to create the earth and 
and the universe out of chaos. So I represent the oldest profession. And then with quiet confidence, the lawyer responded, well, yeah, but where do you think the chaos came from? I say that, of course, with all due respect to our attorneys here. (laughs) And by the way, there wasn't chaos, really, was there, between the first and second verses of Genesis chapter 1. Just darkness, just that presentation and preparation for God to speak all things and to begin to form and shape all things in six 24-hour days. As we review the last ten weeks of our study of chapter 1, I want to do so in a way that doesn't create chaos. But the question that I'm going to pose to you today has, over the years, created plenty of chaos in the clash of worldviews. And here's the question. Questions people are asking today. Doesn't evolution explain creation? Doesn't evolution explain creation? Well, if we've been doing our homework over the past ten weeks then I think I'm very uh, free to, to answer unequivocally that evolution does not explain creation. Never has. And never will. But the debate rages on. But not so much in scientific laboratories, but on the battleground of faith. Evolution is as much a religion based upon faith in what it believes and purports as the many religions of the world. But consider its rationale. uh, Prominent evolutionist uh, William Provine of, of Cornell University has candidly conceded that, and I quote, If Darwinism is true, then there are five inescapable implications. There is no evidence for God, number one. There is no life after death. There's no absolute foundation for right and wrong. There's no ultimate meaning in life. And people really do not have free will. (laughs) Well, that that, uh, certainly doesn't fit in well with those of us who believe in the biblical account of creation. but, But we have to say that it is nonetheless obvious that faith in Jesus Christ does bring people to a point of transformation that evolutionary theorists cannot explain. Case in point, an anthropologist was studying a primitive tribe in South America that years earlier had been reached by a Christian missionary. Now, after having lived among the tribe for several weeks, the anthropologist met with the tribe's leaders and he said to them, You have a wonderful culture, but it is a shame that the missionary came and infected your tribe with his religion. And immediately the the chief replied in the best way he could for this anthropologist to understand him. And he said, see that rock? That's where we would break the skulls of our enemies. See that tree? Not that tree there, that's plastic. See that tree? That's where we would sacrifice them to our God. And if we had not learned Christ was our Lord, 
you would be our dinner tonight. You see, what had this anthropologist seen? He had seen a tribe that had been affected by the love of Jesus Christ. But what did he do? He called it a wonderful culture, but oh, you shouldn't have been infected by the Christian religion. And had that tribe not been affected by the Christian religion, he wouldn't be able to live and tell the story. And so, what does the Bible say about origins then? This is again review because we read in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16, or verse 16, For by Him, we spoke of Jesus being the Creator. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and, and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. Or Romans chapter 1 verse 20 that says, For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Or we read in Psalm 102 verse 25, Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. We have a message as believers in Jesus Christ today to the culture and society in which we live. The message is God created all things. God created all things by the word of His power. God in six 24-hour days created everything that would ever be made. Now Howard Hendricks has said this, that in the midst of a generation screaming for answers, Christians are stuttering. Well, Christians shouldn't be stuttering whatsoever when it comes to creation. Simply, the message of Scripture is clear. What we can stake our foundation upon is that God's Word says that God created it all and that in six 24-hour days, He made all things. And it is no secret that the world of evolutionary science has no grip on solid answers. They have no grip on solid answers and they'll be the first ones to tell you as a matter of fact, Claus Dose, a noted scientist and author, stated this, and I quote, More than 30 years of experimentation on the origin of life in the fields of chemical and molecular evolution have led to a better perception of the immensity of the problem of the origin of life on earth rather than to its solution. At present, all discussions on the principal theories and experiments in the field either end in stalemate or in a confession of ignorance. That's a scientist talking about scientists who can't come up with an answer for the origin of life. But then another scientist, Dr. Walter L. Bradley, who co-authored a book entitled The Mystery of, of Life's Origin, writes this, I think people who believe that life emerged naturalistically need to have a great deal more faith than people who reasonably infer that there is an intelligent designer. I have been pleasantly surprised that what I found is absolutely overwhelming evidence that points toward an intelligent designer. The evidence is not just convincing, it's compelling, because you really have to work hard not to get that conclusion. You have to work hard not to get to the conclusion that there is a designer. Because all we see is design. And so we can say reasonably and rationally 
that God created the heaven and the earth and all that is in them, and He did so in six 24-hour days, and in contemplation of what He produced, He pronounced the whole creation in verse 31 of chapter 1 to be very good. As a matter of fact, literally it means exceedingly good. Behold, he saw what he had made and he said, It is exceedingly good. It is in perfect harmony with every other part, all perfectly formed and perfect in abundance. And now at the end of the sixth day, the Lord stresses the completion of all his work. Let me interject before we go on. That as he looks over six, the six days of what he created, to say that it was very good also implies something else. That there was nothing that speaks of chaos between the, the first verse and second verse of Genesis chapter 1. Nothing that speaks of chaos or that speaks of, of, of darkness in the sense of darkness that leads to evil or wickedness. Nothing that talks about death because God would not have called it very good. So, we read in verse 1 of chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. You may want to underline the word finished there. And all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work. You might want to underline the phrase ended his work. Which he had made. By the way, had made is past tense. That's a good thing to underline as well. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Now, these verses, verses 1 through 3, serve as a footnote to the account of creation. We're introduced to the rest of God, that God rested on the seventh day. But don't think that the Lord can ever grow tired in any situation. It's not about Him kind of getting tired over those six days. Boy, I worked really hard on those six days. Whew. I need to sit down on my divine uh, easy chair and, uh, you know, sit back and drink me a nice cup of tea or something and turn on, you know, get my remote and start flipping channels to see what else is on TV. You know, this is not God. It's not about rest. It's not about resting the body because, of course, we know God is a spirit. In fact, the rest of God is a wonderful thing for us to consider. The more that we understand the nature of the physical universe, the more that we see that the material universe is merely an expression of the boundless energy of God. Consider that each material object in the universe is composed of atoms, which really are just bundles of pure energy. Energy passing into motion, motion passing into phenomena, as it were. But obviously the God who can create more universes than man can count and who can lock up within the tiny breast of the atom enough energy to obliterate or destroy or demolish an entire island, he cannot possibly grow tired. So it isn't about that, is it? 
What we do find in these three verses is, first first of all, that, that the creation was complete. The creation was complete. All that God did on that one day was to look back at the six days and say, it's finished. It's complete. It's done. And so in verse 1 it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and, and all the host of them. Well, it's been said. And this is a wonderful little phrase, and you might want to write it down. Last night I had to say it three times, but you know, that was last night. You guys are much faster. I'm sure you took shorthand in school. They don't teach shorthand anymore, do they? I mean, that's, that's gone out because of computers and stuff. But it's been said, and here it is. In the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, He is revealed. In the Acts, He is preached. In the Epistles, He is explained. And in Revelation, He is expected. Wonderful little thing to write in your Bible and remember. I'll say it again. In the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, He is revealed. In the Acts, He is preached. In the Epistles, He is explained. And in the Revelation, He is expected. Everybody got it? All right, one more time. In the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, He is revealed. In the Acts, He is preached. In the Epistles, He is explained. And in the Revelation, He is expected. Well, these three verses that we're looking at today, they paint a prophetic picture of Jesus Christ. Now, we know that when we get to chapter 3 and verse 15, there is a very specific verse that points directly to Jesus. But nonetheless, understand this, that, uh, well, understand this, that we aren't to misunderstand something. Because a lot of times when we say that the scriptures paint a picture, we want to say, well, the picture is metaphoric. But no, don't misunderstand. The seven days were an actual event. The way God created the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh, that's an actual event. And on the seventh day, God did rest. But why did He rest? Why did He rest knowing that He never gets tired? Well, understand, as we're getting to this idea that, that this is a picture of Jesus, and picture pointing to Jesus, I should say, it, His rest wasn't for His benefit, it was for ours. God's rest was not for His benefit, it's for ours. Do you remember the time in the Gospels that the disciples picked up some grain to eat on the Sabbath because they were hungry? And the Pharisees came up to Jesus and, and accused them of breaking the Sabbath laws? In, in, in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, Jesus said to those Pharisees, He said, the Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. So anything God does on the seventh day is not for His benefit, it's for us. And so God rested for our benefit, not His, which begs another question here. What benefit do we receive from God resting on the seventh day? 
Is it primarily for health reasons? I mean, if it's, I mean, it's true that we need rest sometimes, and, and certainly the Lord really did a great job in, in, in giving us six days to work and, se- and the seventh day to rest the body, but that's not the primary reason. Well, by the way, isn't it interesting that the whole world understands seven days? I think I mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating. Where did the world get the idea that every you know, week is seven days and, and you know, we work six days and rest on the seventh? Jeez, I think it comes from the Bible. Did you know, how many of you are his, history buffs, of, uh, especially of the French Revolution? Anybody here? Just, boy... I just, honestly, you, I always say, well, about three hands went up. Today, three hands did go up. So they may understand this if, 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 when I say that. Did you know that it, the, in the French Revolution, there was an attempt to change how many days there are in a week? They wanted to go from seven days to ten days. Read about it when you study the French Revolution. And, and let me say that the reason why they wanted to change that, there, there was an underlying reason. There were some political reasons. There were some, uh, uh, you know, a lot of ingrowing civil type uh, war things, you know, going on. But the real bottom line is that the French Revolution was led by a lot of people who didn't care for God and didn't want to believe that there was a God. And they didn't want to believe that God created the world in, in, in six days and rested on the seventh. So they decided they wanted to change the calendar. Well, that didn't go over too well. But anyway, I don't know why I mentioned that, but it, that's good history. So what's the primary reason then? Getting back to where we're supposed to be. It wasn't for health reasons. The primary reason that God set aside the seventh day, as we see in verse 3, is twofold. Twofold. First of all, he set it aside to look back on the marvelous work of his creation. To look back on his marvelous work of creation... And then secondly, he set it aside to look forward to the marvelous work of his son. To look back on the marvelous work of creation, to look forward to the marvelous work of his son. You see, I want each of us to recognize that the finished work of God in creation and his Sabbath rest, I want you to consider it as a foreshadowing of Christ's finished work on the cross. I want you to see it as a foreshadowing of Christ's finished work on the cross and the rest that we have is in Him. In order to do that, we're going to look at three parallels today between the finished work of God in creation and the finished work of Christ on the cross. Well, let's face it, the the words rang out at the very close of creation as on the cross. They rang out again at the close of redemption. What were those words? It is finished. And we'll come back to that thought in just a moment. But those who hold to evolution have no choice but to eliminate, ignore, or rewrite the first part of Genesis. And when I say the first part of Genesis, that would be the first 11 chapters. Those who hold to evolution have no choice but to eliminate, ignore, or rewrite the first part of Genesis, especially our present text today. Evolution isn't science as much as it is a philosophy. We've been hitting upon that thought through the last ten weeks that we've been in Genesis. And data, though, has been collected to support its philosophy. 
It's a philosophy that teaches that things go from less organized state to a more organized state. In other words, things get better and better all the time. Folks, if you observe the evolutionary trends today, would you say that things are getting better? That contradicts their whole theory. Things are not getting better, they're actually getting worse. But you see, it's so wrong on so many different levels. Let's face it, the, the first and second laws of thermodynamics, which we've touched upon as well in the first ten weeks of our study of the book of Genesis, make it very clear that nothing is getting better, everything is wearing down, entropy is, is, is existing in everything, and, and uh, so, how can it be getting better? But it contradicts, if it does anything at all, it contradicts Scripture. There are dozens of different theories of evolution, each one a little bit different from the others, but one thing they all have in common is that they are continual ongoing processes. By nature, processes never end. They are never finished. But what does the Bible say? It says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. There is no mistaking the fact that this passage teaches that when the six days were accomplished, creation was complete. That's what the passage clearly teaches. So, we're faced with a choice. Either evolutionary philosophy is true, or God's Word is true. You've got to make the choice. I will tell you personally, I've made the choice. I believe what God's Word says. How many of you believe what God's Word says? I believe the Bible when it says that all of God's creative work was finished after the sixth day. Everything that could be or ever would be created was finished. Nothing could be added to it. There is nothing we could ever do to add to God's creation. Please understand that, you know, we, we, we've seen thousands upon thousands of generations pass since creation. We would argue, well, uh, there's a lot of people that have been created since then. Well, no. Adam and Eve were created. From those two came all the rest of us. It was already built into them. Just like all the systems were built in, everything was built in perfectly in the first six days of creation. Nothing else had to happen. Now, reproduction, of course, happens. It's part of the first day. Or the second day, or the third day, or the fourth day, or the fifth day, or the sixth day. It's all part of what God created. So he didn't have to create again. I mean, that's the wonder of what God did. That's the wonder of how God thinks. That's the wonder of how God plans. That's the wonder of how God works. That's the wonder of how God brings forth His will. So, nothing to argue there. Nothing can be added, you see. There is nothing that we could ever do to add to God's creation. We can rearrange parts of it and use it. But we can't add to it. And by the way, we can't take anything away from it either, can we? I mean, let's face it, the doomsday environmentalists that some people on radio call the environmentalists wackos. But the doomsday environmentalists will disagree with me, I'm sure. But the Word of God says that man will not destroy the earth. What are they saying? Man is destroying the earth. What does God say? Man is not going to destroy the earth. Why? Because the Bible says that God will eventually judge the earth, but not man. Won't destroy. Man's not going to destroy it. God's going to judge it. As a matter of fact, turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 
There in Second Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. Another great verse to show the heart of God for His creation. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us who are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Isn't that a wonderful, compassionate God who created all things and created all of us? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Does that sound like something man's going to do to this earth? Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought we to be? What manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation, which is conduct? and godliness looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat nevertheless we according to his promise look for new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells or wherein dwelleth righteousness that's what we are to be looking for what is that telling us well we we realize that that what we are living in presently is not going to last much longer but it isn't that we're destroying it. Oh, we've destroyed, the, we've destroyed the ozone layer. Oh, you know, rainforest. Oh, this and oh, that. You know, man is doing all of these. Man, we're just going to kill ourselves. Oh, we do a pretty good job of that in our streets today. We do a pretty good job of that in, 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 in conflicts here and there and even in homes. Well, what a strange thing it is. You know, you, you, you hear the news and, and people are shooting each other in their own homes. What's wrong with this world? But all of that together isn't going to do what God can do when he says, this present world will be destroyed. But there is a new heaven and a new, a new earth coming where, draw, where dwelleth righteousness, and that is where Jesus will be. And he comes and he sets up his throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years, and then, of course, the new Jerusalem will come. Folks, we believe, if we believe that God created the world in six days, if we believe that that uh, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We believe that salvation comes through Christ alone. Then we need to believe that when God speaks of coming again, of, of Jesus coming again, and this world being ended, we need to take it serious. We need to take God's Word seriously. Now, in the Scriptures we read about another completed work. I Referred to it earlier, but I want you to turn, uh, keep your finger here in Genesis and turn to John chapter 19. And then verses 28 through 30, we see Jesus on the cross. And I want you to listen carefully to the wording that is given to us by John. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John says, After this, Jesus, remember, he's on the cross. Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished. What is that telling you? It tells me a number of things. First of all, it tells me that all of these ideas and conceptions that the world has had about, about Jesus 
When they've made movies like uh, The Last Temptation of Christ and all of that, you know, that have made, or Jesus Christ Superstar, trying to make Jesus so much like he doesn't really know what's going to happen or whatever. No. This tells me very clearly Jesus knew exactly why he came to this earth. There was a work to be done and he did it and he accomplished it. And it says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, everything had fallen into place, everything was now coming to its conclusion, at least up to that point of his, uh, of his needing to die for us and for the sins of men. That the scripture might be fulfilled, it says, saith I thirst. Jesus said, I thirst. On the cross. Knowing that all these things will be accomplished, he said, I thirst. Now, isn't it, I mean, isn't it ironic when you think about it, that the creator of the heavens and the earth, because we know that the scripture tells us that Jesus was there at creation, that Jesus was, in fact, the creator. But the very creator of the heaven and earth, and the earth being mostly water, wasn't it, at the time, is the one who cries out at his death, I thirst. How ironic. Isn't that an interesting thought? On the cross, he says, I thirst, and now... There was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it on a hyssop and put it to his mouth. And when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. And Jesus was not sitting there saying, Well, it's finished. I'm done. I'm dead. Boom. No. It is finished. He's talking about what had been accomplished. He's talking about the work that he came to do, the sacrifice Lamb of God was now offered. And he died. But he said, it is finished. The lamb had to die for the sins of men. It is finished. Implied in all of this, of course, is also the very fact that Jesus said, in three days I will rise again. So it's not as if the resurrection was an afterthought. It was a part of his death. You can't rise from the dead unless you're dead. Jesus promised both. He would die. And he would rise again. A work was finished in creation when God said, It's finished. And a work was finished in Christ when Jesus said and completed His work on earth. And He said on that cross, when His, his atoning work on the cross was finished, He said, It is finished declaring that everything necessary for salvation was complete everything necessary for salvation was complete we can add a, we, we can add nothing to his finished work look at the comparisons here we can add nothing to the finished work of creation we can add nothing to the finished work of Christ he is the author and the finisher of salvation it is his work his grace his love that saves us and it was His sacrifice that made it possible. Not only to be saved, but may I say to you, to, be, uh, to stay saved. To stay saved. For just like the fact that we can add nothing to His finished work, we can take nothing away from His finished work. His work saves us, and His work keeps us. His grace saves us, and His grace keeps us. I want to refer back to what I mentioned uh, of Jesus being the author and finisher of salvation by looking at Hebrews 12 verses 1 through 3 for just a moment before we go on. 
<coughs> here, Paul says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which, the, which does so easily beset us. I think as Christians we need to pay heed to the things that, that uh, the apostles are saying in the Scriptures especially about the fact that we need to lay down every weight of sin that besets us so easily. And let us run with patience, he says, the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Notice, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher, the, the starting line, the ending line, the author, the creator, the finisher of his creation, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners, which could be translated as the hostility of sinners. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. And listen, that translates very well for us when Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, and he says, For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which, have, uh, which I have committed unto him against that day. In other words, I know that he is able to keep me. He's not only the one who saves me, he's the one who keeps me. How like creation. Nothing to add to the creation, nothing to take away from it. Nothing to add to our salvation, nothing to take away from it. Why? Because God saves us through Jesus Christ and keeps us to Christ. And then we read in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it or complete it, literally, until the day of Jesus Christ. He who began a good work in you will perform it, which means he will complete it. If God is performing something, what is he going to do? He's going to complete it. You know, we're not always good at finishing things, but God is. So if he began in us, he's going to complete that work in us. By the way, that's just a reminder that spring started yesterday afternoon. And uh, spring cleaning is going to start taking place at our homes. Let's, let's begin a work. Let's start finishing it. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to me. I've got to finish some of those things I started. God always finishes what he begins. Whereas the creation, the first point, was complete. Secondly, the creator was content. The creator was content. In verses 2 and 3 it says, And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. I'm going to give you a little test, verses 2 and 3. A little quick test. Just going to take a few seconds. But I want you to no notice how many times. Tell me how many times. Well, don't tell me, but I mean, you'll get it ready because I'm going to ask you the question. This is a test. How many times is God mentioned in verses 2 and 3, both in His name or in a pronoun? But how many times in two verses is God mentioned? Now those of you who were here last night, and I'm looking at Serge, don't be answering out loud. It's a short test. Okay, how many times? 
On the seventh day, well, I'm going to give you the answer now. On the seventh day, God, having ended His work, rested, and then He blessed the seventh day, and He sanctified it. In other words, He set it apart. Thus, the Sabbath was instituted. It is interesting to me that ten times... I mean, you've said ten. Nobody wants to answer. A couple of, a couple of you did. Yeah, good. Right. Ten times, in verses 2 and 3. Ten times! God is mentioned by name or pronoun as though to emphasize the fact that it was God's creation. But it was also God's Sabbath. It was God's seventh day. He created it. He finished the work. He rested on that day. It was His Sabbath. And of course we know that later on, when God gave the law to Moses, He commanded that the Israelites remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Sabbath really just comes from the word seven. It's the seventh day. Shabbat. Seventh day. But like most of the commandments, the Israelites ignored it. They ignored it until the Lord punished them for it. He sent them into captivity for 70 years to remind them of all the Sabbaths that they had broken. Something we've been studying in the book of Jeremiah on Wednesday nights. If you'd like to join us. But you know, it must have worked. It must have worked because from that time on, the Jews began creating, if you will, all these laws which would keep them from breaking the Sabbath. I believe uh, the count came up to 602 laws. Now, some of them based on Scripture. But uh, by Jesus' day, these laws were sort of ridiculous. They were really ridiculous. Listen, to carry a loaf of bread from one house to another broke the Sabbath. If you did on the Sabbath, carried a loaf of bread, you broke the Sabbath law. To extinguish a lamp was work. If you turned off a lamp on the Sabbath, you you broke the law. It was permissible to lift the child, but if the child had a stone in his hand, the parent had broken the Sabbath by doing work. It was permissible to look in a mirror, but if you saw white hair and plucked it out of your head, you worked and consequently broke the Sabbath. By the way, this... This was not the reason why God set the day aside. I mean, He didn't do it to make it a a legalistic burden. And and the fact of the matter is that even when the Jews were idol worshippers, you know, worshipping idols on, on hilltops and stuff, still on the Sabbath day, guess where they would end up? At the temple, keeping the Sabbath. What good was it? being that they were idol worshipers. It reminds me of people who just come to church, thinking that if you just come to church, you don't have to listen to what is being said or done, but if you come to church, maybe you'll be blessed. And I know that this is a well-worn out, uh, cliche-ish thing, but uh, let me just say that uh, uh, you don't come come into a church, and and, by coming into a church doesn't make you a Christian, any more than if you stand inside of your garage makes you a car. It's not the way it works. It's the heart that has to be devoted to God and to Christ. So, 
Why did God set this day aside? He set it aside to provide a day of rest and a day of reflection for the Israelites. They were to reflect on all the wonderful works of God in creation. They were to rest in the fact that God had delivered them out of the bondage of Egypt. They were to rest in the fact that the Lord had delivered them from their enemies. Emphasis on rest. Rest on God. Rest on what God has done for you. But consider, if you will, what is written in the book of Hebrews once again. If you'll turn back to Hebrews in chapter 4 and listen to these words in verses 1 through 10. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them speaking of those in the Old Testament, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works, and in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest." Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. So that's why they weren't resting, because they didn't believe God. And again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, this would be Psalm 95, Today, after so long a time as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he has also, or also hath ceased from his works, as God did from his. Which should also remind us of one other thing. We don't work for our salvation. Jesus already did that. But here is a rest that was entered in creation, spoken of by, by Paul here. A rest was entered into creation. But also, he speaks of a rest that was entered in Christ. So Hebrews 4 verses 1 through 10 is important because the writer mentions two pictures of God's rest. The seventh day of God's rest and, and the promised rest in the land of Canaan. Both the weekly Sabbath and the Canaan uh, rest were pictures of something spiritual. The point that he makes in Hebrews 4 is that unbelief kept the Jews from ever entering into God's rest. Even though they kept the Sabbath and even though they entered into Canaan. They did enter in, didn't they? But did they rest? Now he shows that David in Psalm 95 spoke of a future rest that both the Sabbath and Canaan only, uh, only were pictures. A rest you and I enter into by believing. By grace through faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Do you believe in what Jesus Christ has done in going to the cross for you? That was his work. See, that is the rest. God rested on the seventh day. We rest when we come to Christ. Because the work has already been completed. The third thing, and we're going to close with this, is that he that cometh shall be completed. He that cometh shall be completed. Verse 3 says, And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Now, 
A blessing was pronounced in creation because God saw the goodness of his handiwork. But he also knew and saw in the man and woman that he had created in his image the failure and the rebellion and the stain that would be attached to every person born to them in sin. And the blessing that was pronounced in the beginning of creation pointed straight to the blessing that will be pronounced at the end in Jesus Christ. I want you to go from the first book of the Bible in Genesis to the last book of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21. Not quite the last chapter, but the next to the last chapter. Revelation 21, verses 5 through 7. And I want you to see how the blessing of Genesis and the blessing of Revelation go together. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And notice verse 6. Remember, God is telling John to write, but it is the Lord speaking. And actually, it's Jesus speaking. And he said unto me, It is done. Sound familiar? Should. It's the very same thought in Genesis chapter 2, John 19, Revelation 21. It is finished. It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Also what? The author and the finisher. I am Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God. And he shall be my son. A blessing was pronounced in Christ. Just as a blessing had been pronounced in creation. Once again we see the words, it is done or it is finished. And all who have believed in Jesus Christ and are thirsty will drink of the water of life freely. All who have overcome the devil by trusting in the righteousness of Christ will inherit all things. We will walk with God and He will walk with us. But I want you to lastly consider verse 4. Go back just a few verses to verse 4 again. I've left this for the last verse that we look at today. Because I think it's the verse that affects us the most. Revelation 21, verse 4, it says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There were no tears in creation because everything was perfect. The Bible tells us that there will be no tears in the new heaven and the new earth because everything will be perfect as it was from the beginning. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death. You know, there was no death in the beginning. But over the thousands and thousands of years since man fell in the garden, all we have seen is death. Death on the first day. Not the first day of creation, but the first day that man was tempted and took of the fruit 
or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that, you, that the Lord said, if you eat of that tree, you'll surely die. Neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. It's been a painful, painful lot of years of pain. But not in the new heaven and new earth. Why? Because it will be the recreation of the perfection of God. For the former things are passed away. God shall wipe away all tears. What a blessing our eternal Sabbath rest will be when we are with Him in glory. My question to you all today is, have you entered into His rest? Have you entered into the rest of Jesus Christ? If not, why not today? Why not today come for the rest? Jesus invites you to that rest. In Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. If you are restless today, don't leave here restless. Come to know the rest that is in Jesus Christ. The creator of the heavens and the earth who died on a cross 2,000 years ago. Who has said twice it is finished and will say once again it is done. Come to him. And know him. Say to him right now, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Forgive me because I have sinned against you and all that I've done. But I've come to this moment in time in my life to believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. With my mouth I confess the Lord Jesus. And in my heart I believe that he's risen from the dead. And you have said that if I confess with my mouth and believe with my heart that he's risen from the dead, that I would be saved. And today, Lord, I want to be saved. I want to enter into that rest today. And know that my hope is not any longer in this world or in myself or in man. But my hope is in you and you alone, the creator of all things. If you pray that with all your heart. In a moment when our prayer counselors are up here, I just want you to come up and just tell them. I want to pray to receive Jesus. I, I want to know the rest of God. Let's pray.